Good morning. It's good to see everybody here today. and I am blessed and privileged to get to open up the Word this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Um, some of you, if you were in my small group during the during the COVID nonsense, as Paul eloquently referred to it earlier, um, have already heard this, part of it anyway. It's a little bit different. It won't be the same message. but And I know some other folks there have heard it before because I, I preached through, I, I was preaching through the Gospel of Luke where I was at before I came here. And uh, whenever it looked like I was going to be preaching regularly again, that was where I had to go back. Um, now, I'm going to start at the beginning. It was very tempting for me just to pick up where I was at and keep going. But that wouldn't have been fair to you guys. And there was, there's so much grace and blessing in Luke that you would have missed if I'd have done that. So we're going to start in Luke 1, 1 through 4. And we're just going to go through and continue going through the gospel of Luke as long as the Lord tarries. Um, I'm going to read the text and then I'm going to pray. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Father, I just come to you this morning and I throw myself on your mercy. I ask that you be with us today, that you open this up to us, that you implant your word in our hearts this morning, that you let us see something of the glory of what we've been given in your word. Lord, I just pray that we see Christ today, and that we glorify Him, and that we glorify You through our worship. Lord, we thank You for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. The Gospel according to Luke. Y'all are going to be amazed at how, how connected this is to what Paul was teaching in the equipping hour, because... The main point of what he was saying was that the modern worldview and people wanting to do away with Genesis has nothing to do with science. It's all about history. That's exactly true. The Gospel of Luke is a history. It's a historical account. Christianity is grounded in history. It's not about philosophy. It's about history. And the pseudoscience that says that there were millions of years and that all this happened, it has nothing to do with science. It's history. It is a narrative of history that is proposed, a counter-narrative that is opposed to what God has given us in the Scriptures. And so today, we're going to look at a historical account and introduce it. The authorship of both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts is indisputably attributed to Luke, the beloved physician. He was a traveling companion and fellow missionary with Paul. 
Luke's mentioned by name three times in the New Testament. Colossians 4.14, 2 Timothy 4.11, and Philemon 24. I thought about reading them, but I'm not going to. I'm just, you can take my word for it. Um, I'm going to stop there and say that there are going to be several, several reference verses that I refer to during this message. I'm not going to actually read most of them. I'm just going to tell you the Scripture references. So if you're taking notes, you might want to write them down and go back and check me on it later. See if it actually says what I say. But just letting you know ahead of time I'm going to do that. So from these texts in Colossians, 2 Timothy, and Philemon, and from the literary style of Luke and Acts, we know some things about Luke. We know that Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. We know that he was a Gentile. He was a Greek. We know that he was highly educated. And we know that he remained with Paul through his arrest in Rome. Luke and Acts were written back to back, probably in 60 or 61, maybe 60 and 61 A.D. Luke and Acts are the only two books in the Bible. They're the only books in the Bible that are written by a Gentile. Everything else in the Bible is written by a Jew. And taken together... The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are the largest block of text written by any author in the New Testament. You know, we give Paul credit. We say Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He wrote two-thirds of the letters in the New Testament. He wrote two-thirds of the different books. But as far as an actual block of text, Luke's is the largest in the New Testament. He had a lot to say. The Gospel of Luke and Acts were written in the form of letters to a recipient. They were written to a recipient. Most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is a combination of two Greek words. You know, it's, it's amazing in the Bible. It's, it's like God is sovereign or something. Um, every name has meaning. They're important. Theophilus is a combination of two Greek words. Theos means God. In Greek, and phileo is love. So the name Theophilus can have three possible meanings. Lover of God, loved by God, or friend of God. Because of this, because of the name, some scholars have speculated that Theophilus wasn't a literal person, but that he was actually a clever personification by Luke of every person who would read the gospel. Because if you read or hear this gospel, you are being loved by God. He's loving you with the message of salvation and what he's done. So some scholars have speculated that, that that's what Theophilus is. Um, as we go through this today, you can think about this. Your name could be Theophilus. Because God is loving you with his truth. He's presenting truth to you. And that is the way God loves us. Is God's love is not some ephemeral feeling. Love is an action. Love is a verb. And God is loving us with the truth in this gospel of Luke. So you can be Theophilus. But actually, most scholars believe that Theophilus was a real person. 
And because of the title, Most Excellent, he was probably a high-ranking Roman official. Theophilus had been taught the gospel. He'd been presented with the truth, and he possibly had believed it. We don't really know that for sure. But for whatever reason, Luke feels constrained to write to him and lay these things out for him. See, the problem that Theophilus has, the problem that Luke has, is though he has proclaimed the gospel to Theophilus, he can't be with him. Luke's a missionary. He's going about with Paul, planting churches, and he's doing these things. He can't be with Theophilus to instruct him, to disciple him. So, this is a means of grace. God works through means. The things that we do, we, we, we don't think about this sometimes. We feel constrained to pray with our children or to read some scripture to them or to encourage a brother or to encourage someone we don't even know and speak grace into their life. We just think, hey, I just felt like doing that. That's the Holy Spirit. That's how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit constrains us to do the will of God if we're His. And so the Holy Spirit constrained Luke to write this letter to Theophilus, inspired him. So we're going to look at three points today. We're going to look at the why, the reason that Luke wrote this, and we're going to look at the content of what he wrote, and then we're going to look at the purpose. And I know the first one and the last one sound the same, but they're, they're very much connected, but they're not exactly the same. But they are related. So we're looking at why he wrote it, we're going to look at his content, and then we're going to look at his purpose in writing it. So let's start with verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. So Luke is going to write this gospel, this letter, about everything that's happened in the life and ministry of Christ because many have undertaken to do that. Many people have undertaken to write down the things that have happened. If we read over these things too quickly, we, we, we can miss things. Many here is not in reference to Matthew, Mark, or John. That's not who he's talking about. He's not talking about the other gospel writers who have been inspired by the Holy Spirit to write out this account, these accounts. We will endeavor to persevere. Um, think about this. Think about all the things that are going on in the world today. The COVID-19 nonsense. Think about all of the riots and the uh, protests and, and everything that's going on in politics and in the world at large and all of the people that are endeavoring to write accounts of these things. There are tons of people that are writing about all these things that are going on. And the thing that we have is there are as many different perspectives and accounts as there are writers of the accounts. They don't match up. They don't match up. 
As a matter of fact, we've really got a couple of different, very different narratives. One on one side and one on the other. Neither one of them match up and they're probably both wrong. But that's what happens. That's what happens when something major is going on. People write it down. We know that there are extra-biblical historians who recorded some of these things, and some of them we still have today. We still have Josephus, for one. This is the people that Luke is talking about. When he says, many have endeavored to write an account, he's talking about all of those out there that have written these things, and they may not be accurate. Now, this doesn't necessitate evil intent. doesn't mean that you're setting out to deceive. Just means that different people have different perspectives. You've heard the story about uh, the example of a car wreck, and there's 12 people see it. And if you interview all 12 of them, unless they got together and talked about it, they're not going to tell you the same story. They're going to tell you completely different things. Because of that, the Holy Spirit has constrained Luke to study and write out a reliable account. We need an accurate, reliable account. Because when... That, that's very demonstrable by what's going on in the world today. You go on the Internet and you start reading about COVID-19, you're not going to know what to believe. You really don't. You're just going to have to decide for yourself what's true. Because you're, you're really not going to find, you're going to, and you say, well, well, you trust the experts. Really? There's doctors on both sides. So who's the experts? You don't know. The same thing is true with the, the, the riots and the upheaval in politics and the, the social justice and all of this stuff. You go on the Internet and you read about it, you're not going to know what to believe. Because you've got people arguing this and people arguing that and philosophical systems and theories of politics and all of this stuff. They're arguing over it, and it's just going to fry your circuits. If you're actually, honestly, unless you take your own narrative and you apply your own prejudices to it, it's going to make it very difficult when you're reading all these different things. That's also a good argument for just reading the Scriptures and applying them to everything that's going on. That's a different thing. So why a written account? Why do we have a, why is, is God given us in the Gospel of Luke a written account? Listen to what Jesus says in John 17 when he's praying the high priestly prayer. In John 17, I'm going to read verses 14 through 20. Jesus is praying. He's praying to God on behalf of His disciples, these eyewitnesses that Luke talks about. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. 
I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. None of these eyewitnesses are around today. Not a single one of them. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian today, the only reason you are is because God gave us His written word. He gave it to us. This is a gift from God. That's why Luke wrote this gospel. It's God's gift to us. So now we know the Gospel of Luke's a historical account. It's a historical account of certain things, and it's written to Theophilus. So what's an account of? For the best answer to the question of what is the Gospel of Luke an account of, we need to go to Acts 1.1. In the beginning of his second letter, he tells why he wrote the first one. In Acts 1.1, Luke says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Just something for you to ruminate on. I probably shouldn't even tell you because I want you thinking about what we're talking about. But I'm going to anyway. In Luke chapter 1, in the introduction, Luke addresses Theophilus as most excellent Theophilus. And in Acts, he doesn't have the most excellent on there. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones speculated that Theophilus had become a believer between Luke and Acts. And so Luke saw him as a brother now, and instead of addressing him by his title, he just addresses him by his name. I don't know that. That's just speculation. But it could be. But the point is, the first account, the Gospel of Luke... Is about all that Jesus began to do and teach. What did Jesus begin to do and teach? I got an idea that what we should do is look at through the Gospel of Luke. I didn't even go to any of the other Gospels. Just from the Gospel of Luke, I'm going to tell you some things that Jesus began to do and teach. You know, it's amazing when you actually read these things. If you go talk to um, secular scholars that would say, oh, yeah, we, we believe in a historical Jesus, they would say that. But the Jesus that they believe in really doesn't match up when you start reading the things that Jesus began to do and teach. So we'll look first at some of the things he did. He was born of a virgin, Luke 1, 26 through 35. I'm going to go ahead and read that one. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was perplexed at this statement. And kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And in doing this, in Jesus coming into the world, born of a virgin, He fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14. So what is the prophecy of Isaiah 7:14? Glad you asked. Because I'm going to read it, if I can get to it. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. Everything Jesus did was the fulfillment of Scripture and according to the Scriptures. When he was twelve, he amazed everyone in the temple with his understanding of the Scriptures. That's Luke 2, 46 and 47. In Luke 4, 1 through 13, Jesus went into the wilderness and fasted. He was tempted by Satan with the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He was hungry. Satan tempted him to turn a stone into bread. Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Showed him. So if you'll worship me, I'll give you these. Takes him up on top of the temple and says, If you're really the Son of God, prove it. Jump off of here. Even quote Scripture to him. Another side note. The Scripture that he quoted comes from the psalm that the word faith preachers love. Just throwing that out there. Um, anyway, so Satan tempts him. What does he tempt him with? He, te- he tempts him with the lust of his flesh, the desires of his flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, what happened when Satan tempted Adam that way? The first Adam failed. And he plunged the human race into misery, into sin. But Jesus succeeded. He defeated the devil. And how did he do it? He defeated the devil by entrusting himself to the Word of God and thereby proved that he truly is the Son of God. He didn't have to jump off the temple. He just believed his Father. That's the proof. He proved that he was the Lamb without spot or blemish. He cast out demons, Luke 4, 33-35. He healed lepers, that's Luke 5, 12, and 13. And not only did He heal lepers, He touched lepers. And He's still touching lepers. He touched me. And if you're a believer, He's touched you. And instead of him becoming unclean, that leper and I and you become clean. He made the lame, the paralytic, to walk. Luke 5, 24 through 25. He forgave sins. Luke 5, 20. 
That was one of the biggest things that the Jews wanted to kill him for, is he forgave sins. There's only one that can forgive sins. He healed the sick and dying, Luke 7, 1 through 10. That's a case of remote healing, proving his omnipotence and his omniscient. He didn't even have to come in contact with that centurion servant. He just spoke the word, and the guy was healed. He raised the dead, Luke 7, 11 through 15. He made the blind to see, Luke 7, 21. He preached the kingdom of God, Luke 4, 43. He died as a criminal on a Roman cross, Luke 23, 33 through 46. He rose from the grave on the first day of the week. Luke 24, 1 through 7. He appeared to his followers. Luke 24, 36 through 49. And he ascended bodily into heaven. Luke 24, 50 through 51. That's history. Those are historical facts of what Jesus did. Just from the book of Luke. Now let's look at some of the things that he taught. Most of the time, when we think about the things that he taught, especially liberal Christianity wants to focus on Jesus' moral teachings. But Jesus taught a lot more besides just do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. He taught a lot of things. We're going to look at some of the things that Jesus taught that separates him from the secular idea of Jesus, or the liberal idea of Jesus, some of the things that he taught. He taught that he, in his person, was the fulfillment of Scripture, and that in his person, he is the jubilee that sets his people free from all their debts. That's Luke 4, 15 through 21. Let's just read that one. It's too glorious to pass over. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. If you don't know what he's talking about there, in the the law, there was every 50 years, there was a year of jubilee. And all the debts were erased. And if you had mortgaged your property or sold yourself into slavery, you got your property back and you were set free. That's just the short story. Jesus is saying, listen to what he says, And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
He says, I am the fulfillment of everything that you have read. He taught that human behavior and speech is rooted in the condition of the heart. That's Luke 6, 43 through 45. He taught that salvation comes through faith. Luke seven fifty. He taught that he was going to be crucified and rise from the dead. Luke nine twenty two. He taught that everyone who doesn't devote their entire life and being to him will perish. Luke nine twenty three through twenty five. He taught that true greatness manifests itself in humble service. Luke 9, 48. He taught that he is both the only one who knows God and he is the only way to God. Luke 10, 22. He taught... That the only truly necessary thing in life is knowing Him. Luke 10, 38 through 42. He taught that in spite of whatever good things they may do, people are evil. Period. Luke eleven thirteen. He taught that if a person isn't with Him, they are against Him. There is absolutely no neutrality. That's Luke eleven twenty three. That's the reason why this compromise that Paul was talking about earlier is so despicable. We cannot compromise with the world. You you're either with Christ and you believe the word of God, or you're not. You're outside the camp and you might as well be raving and cursing him because you're either with him or you're against him. He taught that there's a place of torment where unbelievers end and that the only way anyone will avoid that end is by believing the word of God. Luke 16, 19 through 31. He taught that it is absolutely impossible for a human being to be saved apart from divine intervention. If God doesn't do it, it's impossible. Luke eighteen twenty four through 27. He taught that the dead will be raised. Those that want to do away with the supernatural. Jesus taught that the dead will be raised. Luke 20, 34 through 38. He taught that His words are eternal. Luke 21, 36. He taught that judgment is coming and the world will not be ready. Luke 17, 26 through 30. He taught that there is a hell. And God is the one who puts people there. Luke 12, 4 and 5. He taught that as a result of his death and resurrection, repentance for forgiveness of sin will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. 
Luke 24, 46 through 47. Those are just a few of the things that Jesus began to do and teach. John says at the end of his gospel that if all the things that Jesus did were put in a book, he supposed that the whole world wouldn't contain all of the books that it would take. And you notice Luke doesn't say all the things that Jesus did and taught. He says that he began to do and teach. So the Gospel of Luke is a historical narrative of facts. And it's not just facts, it's facts concerning a person. It's concerning the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Christianity is a religion built on fact. There's no, it's not built on philosophy. It's built on history. Buddha was a philosopher. Confucius was a philosopher. Muhammad claimed special angelic revelation. Joseph Smith claimed special angelic revelation. All the religions of men. You know, we, we talk about the things that separate. There's really only two religions. You've heard that many times. There is Christianity and everything else. Well, that's true. One of the things that separates Christianity from everything else is Christianity is based on historical fact. Everything else is based on philosophy and the imagination of men. The basic thing, just think about the basic message of Christianity. Jesus Christ died for our sins. Historical fact. He was buried. Historical fact. He rose again. The third day, according to the Scriptures. Historical fact rooted in history. History rooted in history. He died under the wrath of God as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of His people. He rose from the dead the third day, proving that God accepted the sacrifice and the debt was paid in full. This is not philosophy. It's not. It's not something, it's not ephemeral truth that we can just kick around and talk about the relative merits of. It's historical fact. Now, you may choose to not believe these historical facts. You can believe them or not. But it doesn't change the fact that they are historical facts, not philosophy. They're not changeable. Christianity is grounded in history. Verses 2 and 3, he continues and says, Just as they, I'm just going to start with one again, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellence, Theophilus. So the why is because many have, have set out to write histories, uninspired. And there are lots of differences and contradictions and, and they leave out the important things. That's the why. The content of the gospel is Christ. I really want... 
You know, I've preached through several books of the Bible. I started preaching through Luke. This might be the most exciting book of the Bible that I have gone through yet. And they were all good. They're all exciting. But this is focused on Christ. It's all about Christ and what He began to do and teach. Who He is and what He has brought and said to us. So that's the content. The content of the Gospel of Luke is Christ. Through a process of careful investigation, Luke was a doctor, he was educated, he was careful, he was a historian. He wrote out this historical account of the life and teachings of, of Jesus, and he did it based on the eyewitness accounts of servants of the Word. That's what he called them. He's talking about the eyewitnesses. He's talking about the apostles who he was hanging out with. But he's doing it in such a way that he doesn't focus on them. He's taking the focus off of them and he's putting it on Christ, the servants of the Word. And his gospel is not an eyewitness account. Luke wasn't an eyewitness, but it's the product of intensive research and investigation by an intelligent, well-educated man. So, you take that, and some people would look at that and they would give less weight to Luke's gospel than to, say, the gospel of Matthew or the gospel of John. Because they were eyewitnesses. Luke was not an eyewitness. Well, we need to look at something, a doctrine that is very important that we understand, and that's the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. I want you to... Just think about this verse I'm going to read to you from 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 20 and 21. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will... But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And prophecy here does not mean prediction. It doesn't mean forecast. It means a bringing forth, a proclamation. That's what it means, the word that's used in this context. No proclamation of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. No proclamation of Scripture was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Verbal means that every word of the gospel of Luke is true, and it's inspired. It comes from God. Verbal. Plenary means that every word of Scripture carries the authority of God. God speaks His words through the human authors. So, the gospel of Luke doesn't just contain the truth about Jesus... It is the truth about Jesus. It is the truth. Now let's look at verse 4. Verse 4 is where we see the purpose of the gospel of Luke. He says, So that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. The King James says, So that you may be certain of the things that you've been taught. This is the reason 
why this is the purpose for the Gospel of Luke. Um, listen to, there's a similar, at the end of the Gospel of John, John says basically the same thing a little differently. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he says, uh, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Luke writes this. They're saying the same thing. Luke writes this and he says, I have written this so that you may know the exact truth about the certainty of the things that you've been taught. Christianity is a religion of certainty. It's a religion of assurance. The culture that we live in today hates certainty. It hates it with a passion. The culture will tell you that the only thing, postmodernism, the basic tenet of postmodernism is that the only thing you can be certain of is that you can't be certain of anything. You just can't. And I know you all have heard this before, but we could reconcile Christianity with the world today. All we have to do is take away the the and say Jesus is a way. Jesus is a truth. He's one among many, and we'd have peace with the world. But Christianity is a religion of certainty, absolute certainty, based on historical fact. See, if you don't know for certain that Jesus Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures... If you don't have faith in the certainty of this truth, you're not a Christian. You are not a Christian. Listen to this from Hebrews 11.6. I'll get there shortly. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Talk about God. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And Romans 4, 3 says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You know that the... The pluralistic Roman culture that Luke published this gospel into hated certainty just as much as our culture does today. They hated it. They called the Christians atheists because they refused to proclaim Caesar as Lord. They refused to worship the pantheon of all these multicultural deities that they looked to. Everybody would walk by and you put your incense on this one. You'd go over here and put your incense on that one. And you would look to this one and you'd cross your fingers and you'd get your rabbit's foot. And you'd do all this stuff 
just to make sure you checked all the boxes, just in case it might be. Paul preached about that when he was preaching on Mars Hill. He says, you're trying to check all the boxes. You've even got a statue to the unknown God just to make sure you don't miss somebody. Well, I'm going to tell you about him, the one that you've missed. That's what Luke is doing here. The true Christians of Luke's day were absolutely certain that there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things. And we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. And we exist through Him. That's 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Now, I don't know whether everybody here has certainty about these things today or not. I hope that you do. But I know this. God, the Holy Spirit, spoke this through Luke so that his people could have certainty about the gospel, so that his people could have certainty about who Jesus is and what he did and what he taught, so that we could trust in him, so that we could have life in his name. That's why, you know, because this is historical fact and we can be certain of it, it's not philosophical, it doesn't have shadows. You either, it's very simple, you either believe it or you don't. We've given, we've been given the facts. You can either believe it or not. It is a rock. The gospel, the word of God is a rock. In this world that we live in today, this is so relevant to us because there is no firm place to stand when you look around at everything that's going on in our country when you look around at everything that we're being told that we're being taught there's no solid place to stand but the word of god the truth that we're given the facts that we're given it's not a religion It's not some, like I said before, these are not some ephemeral truth claims. It's historical fact, and it is a rock, and we can grab hold of that rock and trust in it. That's what Christianity is. Having this Word implanted in our hearts and resting our lives on it. If you haven't trusted in the facts, the certainty of who Jesus is, what he does, what he's done, and what he has said. Won't you do that? Do that today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we can be certain of, the, the, the facts that you have recorded for us about who Jesus is and what he has done the history that we have, that we can be sure. Lord, we just ask that you implant this, that you give us a greater vision of Christ today. And as we go forward studying through this gospel of Luke, that you help us to see Christ more every with every page. Lord, we thank you for your grace.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.